Hello, can you hear me okay? Uh, it is such an honor to have all of you here. Thank you. Thank you for being here in person. Thank you to all of our friends on the live stream. Can I get a big round of applause for all of our live stream attendees? Thank you. If we don't tell you about the 75 cities around the world, is that's a lot of different time zones. So we got some people tuning in some very unfortunate hours of the day. That's real dedication, so we really appreciate you being with us. Um, it's such a privilege to do this every year. I think we're in our seventh year doing this, and it gets more complicated and more elaborate every year. And for that, I don't think the credit belongs to me. It belongs to you, uh, this incredible community that has made this possible. And one of the privileges for me is getting to talk every year just to give a few opening words kind of of context for what we're doing here and how far we have come as a movement, as a community, and yet how far we still have to go. Because as much as the people who were with us four, five, six, seven years ago feel like this has gotten huge, I get the complaints every once in a while, it's gotten kind of corporate. Shout out to all my corporate innovators in the room. Thank you for being here. But to some people, yeah. I mean, we've had companies who have like groups of 50 people here. And then we have companies for whom they hope one day to have 50 employees total. So it's a very unusual mix of people. And it's funny, you don't understand, in the early days of this, all anyone wanted to know from me was like, well, what big companies are doing this? How do we know it's for real? You know, it's Microsoft doing it or it's whoever doing it. I shouldn't name any companies, they're probably here. Thank you for being here, excellent, thank you. Shout out to Microsoft. Um, and then, of course, as soon as we finally got that validation that companies started to take it seriously, then it's like, oh, now you're a corporate sellout. It's like, you just can't please everybody. <laughs> you can't do it. But I, I personally appreciate uh, people who have taken these ideas and pushed them into so many, to me, very unusual places. And I want to talk a little bit about what we have in common. Why is it that this conference over many years has attracted such an unusual mix of people from companies of such a different range of sizes, industry sectors? What, what do we have in common? I think. Everybody wants to inject startup DNA into their company. Have you noticed that? It's almost like a kind of an unbelievable corporate cliche at this point. And it's not just big company bureaucratic folks who are like, we're going to inject startup DNA into our massive bureaucracy. But it's the number one thing I hear from startup founders when I talk to at every size. How do I keep that startup DNA in my company as I grow? Because so many of you have had the experience where your company you know, used to be so small that you could all fit in one room, and the intensity and the passion and the experimentation was there. And then one day you wake up and realize, wait a minute, I wouldn't even want to work at my own company. I probably couldn't even get hired here. I mean, sure, being the CEO and the founder is a pretty good gig. But the actual work is done by people now who are operating in a system that that's not what I had in mind. In fact. I started this company to get away from that big company bureaucracy. So that's the conversation I want us to have. What is that startup DNA? How do we inject it into companies that have lost it? And how do we prevent that from happening in the future? And in order to do that, I think we have to kind of pull the camera back for a moment and really be thinking about what does it really, really mean to be a startup? So every year we talk about the lean startup movement. And I think we are justifiably proud of what we have accomplished you know, worldwide as a community, as a movement. But I want to say, OK, there's the things that we believe as the lean startup movement. But zoom out a second. What do we believe as the startup movement? What is it that unites all of us that are trying to work in the startup way uh, every year? And I think when you start to look at those structures and practices, you start to realize there's a bunch of things that we all do, even those of us who passionately disagree with each other, uh, that, yet, that there are universal practices across startup land. And you know, people joke Silicon Valley is a state of mind. It's not a physical place, but I really think that's true. First of all, we all believe 
that the startup is an atomic unit of work. It's a thing. There are certain problems in this world that need a startup, not a traditional organization, not a committee, you know, not some kind of government bureaucracy, you know, political process. We need a startup to solve those problems because they're difficult, they're highly uncertain, they require a certain level of disruption and uh, new business models. And we should start to think about that as a tool that's in our management toolbox, no matter the size of our company. Uh, we all believe that small teams can beat big teams. We've all seen it personally, right? Starting small but thinking big uh, is a universal practice. We believe in the power of vision and mission alignment. Nobody gets assigned to work at a startup. You notice this? No, it does not. Silicon Valley doesn't work this way. You wake up one morning, it's like you've been assigned transfer, pa transfer pa papers. Please show up at 3000 Sand Hill Road to receive your new assignment. That's not how it works, in a, especially in an early stage startup. Every person who is there because they fundamentally believe in the mission. We believe in metrics and experimentation uh, in innovation accounting. I think that has become more and more and more a universal part of startup practice. But we also believe in equity ownership. Uh, how many people here own at least some equity in the company where they currently work? Yeah, that's almost everybody. And equity is a really interesting financial derivative that I don't think we talk and think about, about as much as we really should. Um, equity ownership means that every person in a startup has a stake in the outcome, a personal financial stake in the outcome of the company. But more important than that, it is a way of financializing learning. Because why is startup equity valuable? It's usually not because the startup has tremendous residual asset value, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, startups are valuable because of the probability that they might turn into something big. So a 1% chance to become a $100 billion company is literally a financial instrument worth, my net present value geeks aside, approximately $1 billion. So everything that we do to learn what is the size of impact that our startup is going to have, plus everything that affects our knowledge about that probability, is translated directly into financial terms via equity. So, and I guess I should also say, in the startup community, we aspire to be a meritocracy. We believe that good ideas can come from everywhere. And I think, although we have talked many years about uh, the ways in which we fall short of that ideal, and there's still much, much work to be done, we all agree that that is the standard that we should be held to, not who has the best resume, the best pedigree, the best political connections, but who has the best idea should bring it forth. So if we look at those sort of set of practices as uh, the startup as an atomic unit of work, I think what we will come to realize is that entrepreneurship as a management discipline needs to become a function of the modern company. And if you had a company today that had no marketing department, it's not like the company would not do marketing, but people would look at you a little funny. Who's the chief marketing officer? How do people with a marketing background get promoted? How do you establish standards? Like just all the things you would do. If you didn't have an engineering department, it'd be kind of strange. I think when people look back at the way that we organize companies today, they will say, why were they using the same org chart that Alfred Sloan figured out for General Motors in 1920, in 2016, that's pretty weird. So I think we have a new organizational form we have to figure out, small and large companies alike. Our common vision, our shared aspiration is to build an organization that can innovate on a continuous basis and where innovation is not just a noun. Innovation is not just that thing that happened that one time because we got lucky. Innovation is a verb, it's a continuous practice that we do as an organization. And as for those who are interested to geek out on this, we'll be talking about it at the end of today, you can talk about it in great detail, but I also think that necessarily means not just continuous innovation, but continuous transformation. Because what are the odds that we here sitting in this room in San Francisco just so happen to have figured out the one true best org system for all time? 
right? In, in 3016, they're going to still be using the exact org char we figured out today. That's ridiculous. I mean, I doubt it even in 2056. So we have to be thinking about not just what have we figured out about how to evolve our own thinking and our own corporate structures and management practices, but uh, how do we build a function, a discipline, a skill of doing that over and over again and experimenting with new forms as we go out into this highly uncertain world. So that is the, the kind of the theme that we have been thinking about for this conference, for the speakers. Of course, we've got a lot of big name and exciting people for you to meet. I personally get more excited about the people you're going to meet who you've never heard of before. We work very hard to make sure that the absolute supermajority of speakers you hear every year at Lean Startup are not speakers that we've had before. They're probably not speakers that you've heard before. They, a lot of them, this is the very first time speaking at all. We think that's the only way for you to get a really true, diverse perspective of what life is like in the trenches. Um, and there's one more thing I want to talk about. And I don't know. I feel a little uncomfortable about it. But I think it's important to talk about, because I think some of you have noticed that in the United States, we have an election coming up. Anybody, anybody aware? OK, so it's next week. You may, if, you, if you're not aware of that, you should be aware. We're having an election next week. And um, normally, the thing to do in a polite space like this for me to say, listen, it's very important to all of you to vote. So please vote. And that would be that. So, OK, everyone would say, that's great. This is, but this is not a normal year. And I don't really feel that that is adequate to the challenge that we face as a nation. So I know this will make some people unhappy, but I feel the need to editorialize for a moment. So just bear with me. Uh, this is not a normal election, and these are not normal times when you can vote if you feel like it. You can cast a protest vote if you want to. Uh, I think all of us need to view this as a moral obligation to stand up for the values that make this country great. Uh, the practice of democracy and uh, the ability for people to come together and build a civic republic is under threat, and we have to stand up for that. And this is very personal to me. Uh, my grandparents were children of the Depression and the Holocaust. I have grandparents who fought for the US and the Pacific uh, and who were victims of the camps in Europe. And they raised me always talking about the darkness that they lived through personally. And they never talked about it in the past tense. They never said, we defeated that darkness and it's over. They always said to me, beware the signs. And I mean, I grew up in San Diego, California, as a, like, a middle class white kid who's done pretty well for himself. And look at me now, right? So I thought they were paranoid. <laughs> I mean, I rolled my eyes. I was a teenager who was not that interested in that message. And I thought they were being silly. And let me tell you, I don't think that anymore. Uh, I take this very seriously. I think we are seeing that darkness come again. And we have an obligation to stand up to it. So uh, we are going to be phone banking and doing get out the vote activities at the conference. If you would like to join us, please, strictly optional. Um, for those people that don't agree with what I just said, you're still welcome here. Uh, this is not the official position of the conference. And I hope that everybody will feel comfortable talking about this and bring the same experimental rigor and open-mindedness to this as to any other topic as we, as we go through the conference. But I think, uh, I think it's critically important. Entrepreneurship is a public policy effort as much as it is a management tool for making money. And there are real policy implications for what we do as entrepreneurs also on the ballot this year. So I urge you uh, to take it seriously. And just in case I wasn't in any way clear, I want you to vote. But I personally will be enthusiastically and unapologetically voting for Hillary Clinton. And I hope you will do that too. Thank you. Okay.
Not everybody is applauding right now, okay? So I have opened up the can of worms, but please, I want you to, to treat each other with respect. This is an important election, but um, we, have to, we have to still listen and talk to each other and take each other seriously. End of editorial statement about politics. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for making this movement and this community so, so incredible. And I'm very eager to get the show started. So with that, thank you very much and have a great time.